Welcome back. I hope that was useful and even enjoyable for you to speak to each other. So what I'd like to do, to begin to do now, is to begin to look at each of these seven qualities individually, but bearing in mind that these are interactive, interactive qualities. So I'd like to begin with mindfulness. The Pali word is sati. I'm very aware, very mindful that this has become something of a, a cliched word in our world. You know, you probably tell yourself many times that I really need to be more mindful or you might have other people tell you, you know, that you really need to be more mindful. My children tell me I really need to be more mindful and I'm pretty sure my grandchildren will do the same. Um, what do we mean? What do we mean by mindfulness? You know, how does the Buddha speak about mindfulness? What he doesn't do is speak about mindfulness as a kind of one dimensional uh, quality or way of being. In fact, it's a very nuanced word. And I'd like to speak a little bit to those nuances, which are often represented in imagery, actually, in the early texts. And uh, why is it important for us to know those nuances? And for me, the, the answer is very simple, because at different times, in different moods, in different mind states, in different circumstances, it might be more helpful for us to draw on one of these nuances rather than others. Okay, so you have to think again of sati as a kind of orchestra. And each element, each of these nuances of sati actually has a particular function and feels quite differently. Now, it's, it's no accident that the bhajangas, the, the seven limbs of awakening, begin with sati. This word mindfulness is a word when the early translators were struggling to find a, an appropriate or accurate English word for sati. They couldn't find one. So they borrowed this word mindfulness from the, from the Gospels. Probably the most accurate translation of sati is a present moment recollection. And it is the most widely used word in the entire Pali Canon, the early discourses, because it is the embarkation point, the necessary ingredient for any kind of change or transformation. So mindfulness is not just about watching. It's not just about observing. It's about responsiveness. And in the early teachings, a number of images are used to describe these different dimensions of sati. I think I just want to talk about a few of the primary functions of mindfulness or primary dimensions of mindfulness. The first of these is a simple knowing, and I will unpack this in a bit. The second nuance of mindfulness is a protective awareness. The third of the important nuances of mindfulness is that it's an investigative awareness. The fourth of these functions or dimensions of mindfulness 
is it as a way that we learn to reframe cognition. And the fifth, perhaps, is its ability to clean up the field of perception. The sixth one that is not so explicitly mentioned in the early discourses, but which I see as being incredibly important, is that mindfulness has the effect of rebalancing negative attentional bias. This inclination of the mind to almost automatically focus on what is wrong or what is imperfect or what is flawed in some way, rather than appreciating what is well. So let's talk a little bit about simple knowing. This is an uncluttered knowing. To know a sound as a sound, the body as a bo the body, a thought as a thought, a sight as a sight. It sounds so simple, but this is really often not what is happening in consciousness. We see that how much of our knowing is, is filtered. It's filtered through the lens of interpretation, uh, through the lens of judgment, commentary, and association. How much of our knowing is filtered through the lens of how we have known something in the past, triggering our likes, our dislikes, our preferences, our anxieties, and the proliferation of our stories and nav narratives guiding our actions and our reactions and our choices and our speech. I think this simple knowing in, in very real ways is the first and the most significant step of mindfulness because it, it's the movement that is made from being immersed, overwhelmed and identified with present moment experience into a more relational way of being with whatever is being experienced in the moment. The simple knowing is a way that we, we step out of the eye of the storm. So it's no longer I am the thought or I am the body, but there is the body. There is the thought. There is the mood. It's almost as if we begin to have a, almost a, a conversation, a dialogue carefully with, with sensitivity and investigation with present moment experience. The simple knowing is a movement into non-identification. It's a significant rotation of consciousness from being the victim, the owner, the possessor of experience to a relationship with the present moment where it can almost be palpated with mindfulness, where there can be curiosity and a befriending of the moment. At times, sati is translated as being able to bear something in mind, to keep something in mind. It describes our ability to begin to stabilize our attentional capacity. So rather than our attention flitting here or there, you know, drawn by whatever is predominant in the moment, we're actually cultivating this capacity to choose where we pay attention, what we give attention to, and to begin to feel the ability to stabilize that attentiveness. 
Now, stabilizing attentiveness is also the way that we begin to stabilize intention. Because intention and attention rise and fall together. You know, if intention falls away, so does attention. If attention falls away, so does intention. So this capacity to stabilize intention and attention is so crucial on the path as we begin to feel that we, we take steps that we can rely upon. When our, when our intention to attend with mindfulness and kindness to anything at all falls away or is sabotaged by the hindrances, our attention is often subverted into what is called unwise attention, grasping at the thought, grasping at the mood, grasping at the sensory impression, and all of our story about it. So cultivating this simple knowing moment to moment we begin to see the falling away of the hindrances and their, their hold over us. We begin to see the falling away of agitation and aversion and craving. It is such a big part of the development of mindfulness. In this moment, to know the body as the body, not my body, not who I am, not a description of myself, to know a thought as a thought, a mood as a mood, not who I am, not describing myself, not becoming, not identifying, that capacity to hold experience and to relate to experience. The second of the very important functions of sati is protective awareness. And I, I really want to make a very clear distinction between protective awareness and defensive awareness. You know, defensive awareness is, is really tied up with aversion. You know, I, I don't want to see this. I don't want to be near this. Protective awareness is something very, very different. It's learning to guard and to protect the well-being of our own heart and mind. The image that is used in the discourses is the image of a gatekeeper a gatekeeper who stands at the gates of a city, warmly welcoming into the city any of the visitors who really intend to, to serve uh, the well-being of the inhabitants of the city. But the gatekeeper also stands at the gates and acknowledges those visitors who come, who mean actually to undermine the well-being of the inhabitants of the city. The gatekeeper acknowledges, but doesn't actually welcome them in, doesn't entertain them. Think about this in your own experience. You know, we all have thoughts. We all have moods. We all have memories. Uh, we all have plans. And they enter into the city of our hearts and our minds. How do we know what to welcome? How do we know what to acknowledge and yet not to entertain? What the gatekeeper image is really portraying is this quality of discernment that is so essential to mindfulness. 
without discernment. And discernment is a bridge between mindfulness and response. Okay? Without discernment, mindfulness falls into the trap of being really rather passive, just watching, just observing. So discernment is developed. And mindfulness and discernment are so, such close allies in this journey of awakening. Now, there's a difference between discernment and how we use the word judgment, you know, which is often tied up with aversion and dislike and anxiety. Discernment is essentially concerned with beginning to see what leads to distress and what leads to the end of distress in our thoughts, in our moods, in our images, in our memories, what leads to distress and what leads to the end of distress. This is rooted in our own life experience and a deepening understanding of the teaching. Discernment is involved in seeing what leads to liberation, to wakefulness, and what leads us to repetition and to being bound to cycles of repetition. Discernment is involved in what knowing what leads to understanding and actually what contributes to confusion. And, you know, you think about this in your own experiences. You know, there's an early discourse uh, called the two kinds of thought where the, the Buddhist speaks about looking at his own mind as he began his own practice and his own journey, looking at his own mind. And he said, what would happen if I put my thoughts and my moods into two baskets. And in one basket, I put the thoughts that lead to clarity, lead to understanding, lead to kindness and responsiveness. And in the other basket, I place the thoughts that I know afflict me, that lead to repetition, to obsession, to confusion, to distress. He said, if I put these, my thoughts and my moods into these two, two baskets, it becomes much clearer to me of what to cultivate and what to fast, what to feed and what to fast. This is an experiment, I think, a, an investigation for our own lives. We're not short of thoughts to put in those baskets, but to really begin to develop this quality of discernment. As I mentioned, this is, this is, this is what links sati to skillful effort rescues mindfulness from passivity and leads us to be an engaged participant in the healing of our world, both inwardly and outwardly. Learning to be a wise gatekeeper of our own hearts, protecting our hearts from the surges of the patterns and habits that lead only to distress. I think in this, this quality or this nuance of mindfulness, protective awareness, there's always, there's also a quality of restraint. And I, I know that's not the most popular word in our time, although I do have a sense that our world could benefit from a little more restraint. We're not only protecting our own hearts 
from the surges of patterns of greed and ill will and fear, we're also protecting the world from the acting out of these patterns. You know, one of the one of the images that's used in in one of the teachings of the Buddha is this house with five open windows and an open door, and the this, the open windows and the door <coughs> of this house represent the five traditional sense doors: seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, and the door is the sense door of the mind. And as the Buddha put it, you know, through those open windows and the open door flows a a world of sensory impression. Sight, sounds, taste, sensations, touch, and thoughts, because the mind is seen as being the sixth sense door. And flowing out through those open windows and door of the house, that is the open question of what flows out. What flows out? Is it our, our, you know, historical patterns of reactivity, of ill will, of wanting, of anxiety, or what flows out can be actually the world of compassion, of kindness, of generosity, of sensitivity, of respect. And what the Buddha suggested is that we, we seat mindfulness and discernment on the windowsills and the door sill of that house. So that there can be restraint and understanding of what flows in, and there can also be discernment and sensitivity and care about what flows out. I think discernment is is also what introduces an ethical, an essential ethical quality to mindfulness. It's not only about what leads to distress inwardly, but about what kind of footprint we leave on the world with our our every thought, with our speech, and with our actions. So discernment is bringing in this ethical quality. And restraint is actually protecting against the unwholesome taking root. It's not that the unskillful doesn't arise. You know, it's not that the, the unhelpful and the unwholesome doesn't arise. It, it's not to suggest that, but it's about it not taking root and about not being fed. I want to just go through some of the other images that are used to describe sati. And you, you might get a sense in this, you know, the different times and the different moments in your life and the different moods when it might be helpful to cultivate one of these images over another. One of the images that is used is a person standing on an elevated watchtower, an overview of the landscape around them without preferencing any specific details. So mindfulness in this sense is is illuminating all aspects of our inner and outer experience, but it's not being selective. You know, it's not saying, oh, I want to look at this, and I don't want to look at that, you know, or, or that's beautiful and that's ugly. So it's this element of sati, which is about spaciousness and inclusivity and a kind of wideness of view. 
can you sense when that might be helpful for you? You know, in moments of contractedness, in moments of closing down, um, in moments of getting lost in just one detail of our experience, can you sense when it might be more helpful to actually remember this quality of sati that is spacious? Because you can really see that when the mind is, for whatever reason, being very selective, often driven by one of the hindrances, you know, focusing on what we don't like or, or what we need or what we're anxious about. Can you feel that when, we, when, it, when we're doing that, this sort of contractedness of mind that begins to happen? You know, I'm so immersed in, in this obsession. You know, the body is forgotten. You know, sounds are forgotten. Sights are forgotten. You know, so whatever I've closed down around kind of swells to, to feel consciousness. And that's all I see. In those moments, wouldn't it be quite helpful to remember the watchtower? To remember this capacity for spaciousness. Another of the images that are used, and really there are many, many images. Another of the images that is used is, is of a, a, a strong post hammered into the ground. And Attached to the post are, are six leads that are tethering six wild animals to this post. And these wild animals are, are really straining against their leads and wanting to go rampaging and, you know, running about in, in their familiar pathways. And the leads are keeping them tethered and that they begin to tame and they begin to calm and they begin to settle. And... In this image, the post hammered into the ground is the post of mindfulness. And the six wild animals are the six sense doors, you know, who want to go roving around, you know, wildly here, there and everywhere. So mindfulness then is this restraining element that allows us to, to anchor our attention in the present moment rather than being governed by impulse and habit. You might have a sense of when this would be useful, this kind of grounding, this kind of restraining. You know, in those moments when we find ourselves agitated and, and the sense doors become so hungry, you know, hungry eyes, you know, hungry ears, hungry mind, you know, looking for something, how it might be helpful to feel this, this groundedness and this anchoring. Another of the images that is used is of a, a surgeon, a doctor, and someone comes to the surgeon having been shot by an arrow and the head of the arrow is buried in their arm. And a good surgeon wouldn't necessarily whip out their saw and saw off the arm. You know, A good surgeon would actually palpate the wound to determine the nature of the wound in order to be able to offer a diagnosis, in, a, in order to be able to offer a prognosis, and in order to be able to offer a course of treatment. And this, this image very much represents this investigative nature of mindfulness. And 
think how important this is in our life, how how often we we rest upon our conclusions or our views, you know, of, you know, this is this is this, this is that, you know, this, this is hatred, you know, this is this is worthy, this is unworthy. How often we find ourselves in places of distress and want to fix it rather than understand it. And maybe here we learn to to palpate the wound, you know. How is it caused? Where does it come from? What does it need? How can I respond to this? This is a very, it's not just a conceptual investigation. It's a very experiential investigation. You know, I say, oh, my, my knee is aching. Ah, what's the nature of that ache? How do I know it? Where are the edges to the ache? What is beyond the edges of the ache? Another of the images that is used is of a parent holding their, their, their ill child with care and with tenderness. And I think this really conveys that this very essential uh, qualitative factor of mindfulness, which is about kindness and about caring for distress. And we think about how how important that is in our lives. How often in the face of the difficult or distress, we, we don't automatically bring kindness and care. How often we bring judgment or anxiety or agitation. And it's suggesting the power of this attitude of kindness that is crucial to mindfulness. Another of the images that is used is of a a person walking through a crowded marketplace, holding on their heads a jug of oil. And they're followed by a person brandishing a sword who's who's determined to, to cut off their heads if they spill the oil, which is a rather stark image. But I think this really refers to this sense of of embodiment how much mindfulness is somatically rooted. This sense of being really present within the body with carefulness, with with steadiness and with balance. Another of the images that is used is of a farmer plowing their field. And in the time of the Buddha in India, of course, Plows were pulled by oxen and the farmer would stand on the plow in order to to till the ground ready for planting. And the image really describes just the right amount of pressure that the farmer would need to bring in order to make the ground ready for planting and for seeds to grow. And if there's too much doing, you know, if there's too much pressure, um, the the groove will be too deep and the seeds won't flourish. If there's too little pressure, then the seeds will blow away in the wind. So this also speaks a little bit to the the kind of effort that we bring to cultivating mindfulness. And again, this is so important. It's a very open question for us. You know, we can see if there's too much striving, if there's too much forcing, you know, we don't do well. You know, we don't do well. Mindfulness doesn't grow. The seeds don't flourish. If, if we don't have enough effort, 
um, you know, mindfulness really doesn't stand a chance in the face of, of habit and the force of, of patterns of reactivity. So these are just some of the nuances, which are, I think, really important to consider. The reframing of cognition, reframing cognition, again, in, in this field of mindfulness, the Buddha often speaks about kindness as being the primary way of reframing cognition. That what we have previously regarded as being an enemy or something to fear, we discover we can befriend. We discover we can befriend. Bringing an attitude of kindness to our, our judgments, we discover things can change. We can see another person more fully. We can see ourselves more fully. This reframing of cognition. The other dimension of mindfulness that I mentioned was about reframing perception. Uh, no, sorry, cleaning up the field of perception. Perception is a necessary facet of our lives. You know, it's what helps us to navigate our way through the world, to know where we live, to remember things, to, you know, know which car is ours to drive, what our address is. But uh, much of our perception is not navigational. Much of our perception is loaded with history emotional memory, emotional association, emotional history. You know, we see a person that you know, we had trouble with 10 years ago and we haven't seen them for 10 years, but the moment our eyes catch sight of them, we, see the, we don't just see the perception, we see the whole history associated with that person, you know, why they're so difficult. You know. um, we're seeing through that lens. Seeing through that lens, so the past is consistently over and over again being brought into the present. We don't just have the perception, we have the emotional memory, the trauma, the difficulty. We also see this with ourselves. You know, if you've lived with in the past, you know, a, a difficult medical issue with your body, you know, um you know, a back that has been wounded or injured and you've recovered, but you're suddenly going through your day and you feel a twinge in your back and immediately the perception is drawing that whole world of pain into the pain and anxiety into the present. We see it with a thought, you know, a thought arises or an emotion arises and it brings with it a whole story of how that emotion was lived in the past. You know, I'm such a terrible person. I've always been such a terrible person. So one of the primary jobs of mindfulness is to sever the link between perception and emotional history, emotional memory. Doesn't mean forgetting, but it means taking the charge out so that we can begin to see things anew. This is what brings, a, I think, a quality of wonder and a quality of awe almost into our lives that we can be touched and see anew as if for the first time, as if for the first time. 
the probe of mindfulness. It's almost a process of unknowing. The probe of mindfulness takes us beneath our current knowing, our opinions, our views, our fixed perceptions, my beliefs about who I am, about who you are, about what life is, and begins to reveal what is hidden or what is not immediately visible to us. Wittgenstein, the philosopher, once said, words deliver us a picture and the picture holds us captive. Isn't that so true for us? That words deliver us a picture and the picture holds us captive. When we believe we know someone, something, ourselves, in a way we, we almost kind of close the door to learning or to seeing anew. We come bound to our images and frozen perceptions and essentially being bound to the past. It's a good moment for a, a pause. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.